Maybe you're that idiot or that jerk here this morning. Welcome. We're glad you're here. And it is true that God does love you. And so that's really, I think, uh, hard for us sometimes to kind of really get our head and our hearts around. You know, it's, it's easy for us, you know, on our good days, days when we feel like we're good boys and good girls, that, that God loves us. I mean, we're, we're kind of lovable. So it's easy for us to kind of accept that and to receive that. And it's really often in those times where, you know, it's not such a great day. Maybe we haven't been uh, the best Christian or the best witness we could be. And maybe we are kind of in that kind of uh, idiot jerk phase in life, or we're just broken. And, and that, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it is in those times where it is, it's hard for me to get my head and my heart around the fact that even in my darkest, in my most broken state, uh, in times when I am the most unlovable, that God's love towards me never changes. There's three words I love in the Song of Solomon that I come back to often, and it's this word, this phrase, lovely but dark. And um, some of them will say, you know, uh, other translations will be, you know, uh, comely but lovely. And the whole concept there is, is that even though we may see ourselves or we may see others uh, in, in places of darkness or brokenness or just areas uh, of sinfulness, that God's gaze toward us is lovely. He loves us. See, our human love, it, it's, you know, it, it's hot one moment, cold the next, and so oftentimes we'll take that and we'll kind of transfer that onto God, that there just are times where God's love toward me is super hot, and God's love toward me at times is super cold, depending on what I'm doing or what's going on in my life. And again, it's just coming to that place of accepting, uh, even if we don't fully understand how God can do that, it, is that we, in our darkness... In our brokenness, God's love toward us is always, always red hot. And so this morning, you can be here and you can kind of look at that and say, yeah, I'm that idiot, I'm that jerk, I'm that, you know, foul-mouthed, insensitive, grumpy, whatever it is this morning. If you just can open your heart and just say, God, in the midst of all of that, can you just show forth? Just pour forth, just shower me with that unconditional, red-hot love that only you can give. And, and he just begins to kind of come in and begins to flow into those places of brokenness this morning. So I, I sincerely say, if you're that idiot, that jerk here this morning, welcome. And it is true, God does love you. George W. Bush, 41st U.S. President, said this one time, he said, use power to help people. For we are given power uh, not to advance our own purposes, nor to make a great show in the world, nor a name. But there is just one use of power, and that is to serve people. He was right. That is the kind of leadership we need in Washington, D.C. and among our politicians. That's the kind of leadership we need in our communities. It's the kind of leadership we need in our churches. People who understand we are here in whatever capacity to serve people. 
Again, we abuse power when we utilize that power or the influence that we have been given. We abuse that when we're trying to utilize that for self-gain or self-promotion. One of the buzzwords back in the 90s, and it was a word that everybody used, and it was everywhere, and it was on book titles and news articles, was that word empower. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of grew up in the Brady Bunch era, and one of the buzzwords back when I was growing up was the word groovy. I mean, you know, Marsha Brady, you know, she would always comment on how groovy her clothes were or, you know, how groovy Greg was. I mean, groovy was just, it it was just groovy to say groovy. That was a big word back in, in, in my day. I mean, it's one of those words that, you know, you use that today and, you know, people kind of want to just distance themselves from you. That word empower was a big word back in the 90s, and that word simply meant to give your power away. I've been empowered not to be powerful. I've been empowered to give that power away. That's what it meant. And I believe that is what people are longing for leaders to do, especially in the church. Empowering leaders are those who not only model leadership, but they're there to also to train, to equip, to nurture, and encourage people to become leaders in the areas of life and ministry that God has led them in. John Maxwell, a man who has written many, many books on leadership and empowering leadership, he said the more leaders a church or organization has, the more effective that church or organization will be. And the great greater the leaders in the church, the greater the potential becomes in the church. And this process is, again, called the principle of multiplication. Jesus, who, again, was the greatest leader that ever has been, ever will be, trained 12 others. He equipped, he empowered them to become leaders, thereby multiplying his effectiveness from just one to 12 Andrew Carnegie once said, no man will make a great leader who wants to do it all by himself. Jesus was a great leader, and one of the things that made him a great leader was he brought others alongside him, empowered them to help him carry forth the mission God had given him. Ken Blanchard in his book, The Servant Leader, says this. He says, there's two kinds of leaders. There is the self-serving leader and there is the serving leader. And the problem in a lot of churches and organizations, a lot of what we see in politicians today is that to them, the gift of leadership is for their own self-serving, their own self-gain and self-promotion. They're always looking out for number one, what's in it for me? And the self-serving leader is the one who's always asking, what about me? Jesus was a serving leader. Jesus was always using his power, his influence, his authority, and his leadership to empower and to serve others. Again, we clearly see this approach that Jesus had in his attitude in leadership. When he said to his disciples in Matthew 20, he said, you know that in this world, kings are tyrants. And officials lord it over the people beneath them. But he says, but among you it should be 
quite or, or markedly different. Whoever in my kingdom wants to be a great leader, you must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first must become your slave. And Jesus said, for I, even the son of man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. What a powerful statement. Jesus is telling them leadership is not to be found in being served, but it is rather about taking that and serving others. So this morning I want to look at two very, very powerful lessons that Jesus teaches his disciples. I believe he wants us to catch this as well about leadership, and I want to use the story where Jesus fed the multitudes. Jesus performs a miracle, and as he does this miracle, he does it to serve the people, he does it to teach the multitudes, and he does it to really empower and to influence his followers to become the leaders they would need to become once he was gone. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you, take them out, open to John chapter 6. We're going to start there with verse 1. And it says, After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. And then Jesus climbed a hill and he sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. And Jesus saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him and turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? Now get this, he was testing or setting Philip up for he already knew what he was gonna do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we would not have enough money to feed them. Then Simon Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and he said, "Uh, hey, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But really, what good is that to this large of a crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and he distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather up the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. First lesson of effective leadership that we learn from this miracle Jesus performed is this. Do not measure a problem, a challenge, a circumstance, a situation in your life according to your own abilities alone. Again, that's the wrong measuring stick. Anytime in life you face a challenge or a situation, 
and, and you feel kind of small or inconsequential or overwhelmed by that circumstance, there is a very good chance you will never ever take the leadership in that circumstance or situation. I mean, today, just look around you. The world has a lot of problems and challenges that are tall, and a lot of would-be leaders who see themselves as small and lacking the ability to tackle them, and thereby these problems just continue to go on and on and on unresolved. If we're gonna learn to lead, to live like Jesus, one of the things we're gonna have to learn to do is you don't measure the problem or the challenge you're facing according to your own abilities or resources alone. You'll never ever do anything significant if that's all you can bring to the table. That's what the disciples often did and it's exactly what Philip did in this instance. He measured the challenge of feeding 5,000 men and they put that in there because there were many women and children so, I mean, you can see how this number would have been even more voluminous than the 5,000. I mean, you're probably looking at maybe 15,000. And that's if the men were married and had children. So, so Philip's looking at this circumstance, and he's just overwhelmed. How could we ever do this if it's just up to us on our abilities and resources? And he quickly figures out, we don't have enough. I mean, I've already done the math. Then he did what we all do in that circumstance. He panicked. One translation of John 6, 7 says, Philip replied, it would take a small fortune to feed them. He looks at Jesus and says, what are you talking about, Jesus? I mean, we can't do this. This is impossible. And Jesus looks around. He sees all these people needing to be fed. There's nothing. No refrigerators. No praise cafe. There's nothing. There's not even golden arches nearby. <laughs> and so Philip sees what most of us would see in that situation. He sees the impossible. It's out of the question. It's beyond our scope to even think about. And here's the thing that I love about Jesus. Jesus loves impossible situations. Jesus thrives in impossible situations. He's God. Impossible circumstances do not bother him. They do not intimidate him. I mean, Jesus does not bite his fingernails over impossible situations. I mean, he doesn't pace back and forth in difficult situations wondering, oh my, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? No, he loves and he thrives in the impossible. Remember, Jesus is the one who healed the woman who had been continually bleeding for 12 years. She tried every doctor. She tried every potion, every prescription, and no one could help. Jesus, he's the one who healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. He's the one who raised a guy that was dead for like three or four days. That's pretty impossible. But Jesus thrives in that. Jesus loves taking impossible things and making them possible. 
He even loves allowing, leading you and I into impossible situations, places where we are in way over our heads. Jesus himself said in Matthew 19, 26, he said, with human beings, this is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. Jesus loves allowing us, leading us into impossible, difficult, in over our head situations, because you know what? It causes us to begin to lean into and to leverage in his direction our abilities, our resources, our very lives, and just to begin to rely more on him and less on ourselves. Some of you here this morning, you may kind of feel like you're in an impossible situation here this morning. Some of you may feel like you're in a problem right now and you just feel so overwhelmed, so over your head, you kind of just feel the impossibility of it as you're thinking about it now. Since we're talking about leadership, some of you may be in an impossible situation as a boss or a CEO. When I say impossible situations, I'm not talking about you know, things that you brought on yourself. God will help us there as well. Rather, I'm talking about those circumstances sometimes that just come into our lives that we really don't have any control over. They happen, and it really is impossible as we kind of measure that, we compare that, we line it up with our abilities and our resources, and we simply say, it doesn't measure up. It's not enough. It won't work. So why does God allow, and again, he clearly set Philip up for this. Why does God sometimes set us up for impossible situations? You know, because it's the perfect test. John 6, verse 5 says, Jesus soon saw a great crowd of people climbing the hill looking for him. Turning to Philip, he asked Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing. He was setting up Philip. He already knew what he was going to do. I love that. Some of you right now are in a situation you do not know the way out. You don't know how this is going to be resolved, and God's already got it all figured out. And you're just in a place right now where God is testing you. Now, if you've been coming to Wednesday Night Renew, you'll recall that we've kind of been teaching on the book of James. And we kind of talked about these two different kinds of testing. One is called trials. The other one is called temptation. Now, the interesting thing is both of those worlds, trial, temptation, it's made up of the same Greek word. And so sometimes you'll find that Greek word translated trials. Sometimes you'll find it uh, temptations. And what we've kind of were discovering and talking about on Wednesday nights is the difference is, is that trials are situations designed by God in order to grow us, to increase our faith. Temptations, on the other hand, are designed by the enemy, the devil, and they are there to cause us to sin. So Jesus kind of sets up the situation, leads the disciples into this in order to test them, in order for God to be able to grow, to expand, to increase their faith and trust in him. So it's pretty easy to notice as you take a look at the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that, that Jesus kind of allowed his disciples to struggle with this 
He knew what he was going to do, but he doesn't play his hand quite yet. He knew what he was going to do before he worked the miracle. And and that ever happened to you? Or or does God always just kind of give you what you need right away? In my life, it certainly happens. There are times where I kind of have to get in there and and kind of struggle and, and wrestle with this. He allows me to see sometimes how impossible the situation or circumstance is without him. Why does he do that? Again, it provides a perfect test. It provides perfect ground. It provides a perfect opportunity for God to grow me in my faith and trust in him. Now, now let me just be really, really clear about this. When God tests us or sets us up or kind of leads us into impossible situations, it's not to grade you. It is to grow you. God does not grade us, but he wants to grow us. God doesn't need to grade us. He already knows our heart. God already knows everything you and I think or feel. And for some of us, that could be frightening. But again, dark but lovely. He loves us. He already knows us. So he doesn't need to test us in order to grade us. So why does he test us? Well, in order for us to know what is on the inside of us. And then we will come out of the other side of that test, hopefully having grown in our faith and our trust and our reliance upon him. So how do we change? How does God grow us? Well, sometimes there's, there's three I think important areas where God will often take us. God puts us in impossible situations and circumstances, again, to stretch our undeveloped faith. God wants to grow your faith. And one of the places that God can do that is just put you in a situation that you're just in over your head. God will put you or he'll lead you in impossible situations to strengthen our eternal hope. All of a sudden, we're not just looking at this world anymore, and the things we're holding on to, suddenly we kind of realize, man, there's more to it than this. And sometimes God will lead you. God will put you in impossible, difficult circumstances, again, to show his incredible love. When we finally see that God's answer, God's approach, God's way of dealing with this circumstance or situation is different than we would think it would be And we just kind of come to discover he's always had my back. He's always had the answer. He's always known the way out of this. And it just confirms his deep, unconditional love for us. Second lesson for leadership in the feeding of the 5,000, a little in the hands of Jesus becomes much. A little when we just give that little that we have and we just put it into the hands of Jesus, it becomes much. What you might feel is just a little. It's insignificant. It's embarrassing how small of what I have to give to you. Just that little in the hands of Jesus, he can take that and just multiply that exponentially. Andrew, 
Another of Jesus' disciples had his problems with what Jesus was proposing they do in feeding the 5,000. Jesus says, you know what, just go out and do a search in the crowd. And I want you just to find all the food you can and we'll use it to feed these hungry people. And Andrew comes back and look what he says. That Andrew, Simon, Peter, brother spoke up and said, uh, all we could find was a young boy with uh, five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that going to be in this huge of a crowd? The thing about Andrew is, if he would have just stopped one sentence earlier, if he would have just stopped one sentence sooner, he would have been the hero of faith in this story. He would have been the disciple who came to Jesus and said, look, five loaves to fish. We can do it. You can do it, Jesus. Go, Jesus, go. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, but what good is this with this huge of a crowd? Andrew, like a lot of us, struggles with this thing of faith, as does Philip. Philip says, it's impossible. It'll take too much money, a small fortune. He's looking at the problem. Andrew, he says, it's impossible. We've got too few resources. We can't meet the need. He was looking at himself. Jesus' miraculous gives powerful answers to both of these leaders in that moment. It would take too much, but no need is too great. No situation is too impossible for Jesus. We have too little. Nothing is too little. Nothing is wasted when we put it in the hands of Jesus Christ. And and this is not an uncommon lesson. This is not just an isolated lesson here in the book of John and not really seen anywhere else in the Bible. It's a very familiar theme. You see it in about a dozen different places where God does it again and again and again over and over and over. Remember a guy by the name of Gideon in the Old Testament? He had this huge, mighty, strong army of 15,000 men. And God said, that's too many. I don't need that much. Let's whittle this down to about 300. Now go and conquer the enemy. God took Gideon's little army whittled it down from 15,000 to 300, and God does great and miraculous and mighty things with it. A little in the hands of God becomes much. Remember a guy by the name of David? Whole army of Israel was there to defeat one giant named Goliath. And here comes David, all alone, all by himself, with just a sling and five smooth stones four he didn't even need, and he goes out, and he defeated the enemy. A little in the hands of God becomes much. Every one of these experiences that people go through, where again, they're looking, and they're trusting, 
God in difficult circumstances for more than they could ever imagine, see that same pattern happen over and over and over again. God, I have so little to give you. I have so little to work with. But what little I have, I'll put in your hands. And God takes that and he just begins to work miracles with that. If you're going to live and you're going to lead like Jesus, if we're going to lead in the things that God wants to accomplish in and through us, in and through this church, we're going to have to understand this process. Because if you don't, it'll confuse you. If you don't, it'll kind of cause you to wonder, what in the world is God doing? Why has he led me here? Why has God brought me into this situation and this circumstance where it feels overwhelming and impossible? What in the world, God, are you doing? Here's the way it happens. Every time you read the different experiences people had with God, step one is God reduces our resources. Oftentimes when God wants to do something great and miraculous and mighty in your life, many times the first thing he's gonna do is he's gonna reduce or he's gonna eliminate some of your resources, which is, again, totally counterintuitive. I mean, you would kind of think, if God's gonna do something great and miraculous and mighty in my life, you figure he'll do it by filling my bank account. God will give me more money than I could ever use, and I'll take those resources, and I'll just use them for the kingdom of God. God'll make you feel like Superman. You can go on and just take on the world. You, you, can, you can conquer any and every enemy. Just bring them on. It's not what he does. Again, he reduced Gideon's army, 300. He reduced the entire Israelite army to one kid, five stones, and a sling. The disciples, they go out to find all the food they can find in that huge crowd and they come back with a paltry meager inconsequential embarrassing amount he reduces our resources second step is he maximizes the need he doesn't let us escape or get away from the glaring fact how big and overwhelming this problem is. It's like he kind of takes the impossible and he just magnifies it. And you feel the weight of the impossibility of that. We may want to pretend, oh, it's really not that big, it's not that bad. It's not that dire. I can probably handle this on my own. Then God just kind of brings us into that moment where we really begin to understand and wrestle with the fact, wow, this is overwhelming. This is too huge. He maximizes our need for him. Oftentimes I've asked myself, why doesn't God just make life easier? Why doesn't God just give us all the time we need in this world? 
Why doesn't God just give us all the money, I mean just endless amounts of money, and we can just do everything we need to do in this world? Why doesn't God just give us all the resources we could possibly need? I think part of the answer to that question is if I, you, had all of the time, all the money, all the resources that we needed in this world, one of the first things we would take out of that equation is God, don't need him. I've got it all handled. I've got everything I need to tackle the problem. God never wants us to go with this alone. So oftentimes he'll reduce our resources, he'll maximize the need and bring us to that place where we realize without him, there's no way this is getting done. No way this is gonna be accomplished without him. Sometimes it's the very lack of resources that is part of God's plan so that you and I will always realize how very much we need him, not just in this world, but also in eternity. Where, by the way, all of our needs will be met for all eternity. So again, oftentimes God will magnify the need. Here's the third thing that happens in that situation of reduced resources, magnified need. Here I am, here's the problem in that circumstance, in that sense of impossibility of being overwhelmed. Someone trusts God with what little they have. Someone actually just steps out says, you know what, God, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna believe you, have a plan. I believe, God, that you're gonna take the impossible and make it possible. It's an incredible moment, whether whether it's a David who just trusts God with a sling and five smooth stones, or Gideon who just trusts God, says, yeah, I'd rather go into this with 15,000, but I trust you to be able to do it with 300. Or a boy who just kind of willingly gives his five loaves of bread, his two fish. Someone decides to trust, to just step out in faith and trust God with what little resources and abilities they have. Oftentimes what we wanna do is we wanna wait for the Calvary. Someone with the power, the influence, the ability, the resources to be able to meet this great need, to lead in this great way. And time and time again, my story, your story, they never show up. The need is so great. The opportunity is so enormous. But the willing, the able are so few. What God always does instead is to wait for someone to come along who's willing to just trust him, to just give what little they have, even in light of the fact that the need is so great, so impossible, so overwhelming. Fourth thing that happens is God uses the little that we have to show how great he is. He doesn't discard what you have for something better. He uses the little that we have to do something greater, 
to show and to reveal how great, how awesome, how majestic he is. That's what I love. It's not like the little boy comes up and says, here, Jesus, here's five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus goes, oh, that's nice. That's so cute. And then throws him in the trash. No. Jesus takes what little they had, the loaves and the fish, and he uses it to meet everybody's need. It's incredible. That's what God does. He's a master at that. He uses what we give him to meet the needs. In this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 or the 15 or the 20 or the 50,000, however many there were, you come to see God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We want this much with our lives. God wants this much with our lives. So when you feel like his ways are not your ways, it's not because he wants to reduce your life or to punish you or to minimize you. It's because he wants to increase. He wants to maximize you, your potential, your influence. He wants to use you to leverage you for his greatness in this kingdom that he is building upon the earth. But even more to me, it's an example of, G, of who Jesus is. Because, see, if you don't trust who he is, you're not going to trust how he works. If you don't trust who he is, you're not going to trust how he works. Every miracle Jesus did is an example of who he is. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, and then he feeds 5,000 people. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he made a blind man see. He said, I am resurrection, and I am life, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. It begins with who he is. And when we learn who Jesus is, we also discover what Jesus wants us to become. See, Jesus didn't do all of these miracles, these signs, and these wonders just to impress us, but to express to us that what he was doing, we can also do with him, through him, because of him. In John 14, 12, Jesus says to his disciples, the truth is, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because there's more of us because I am going to be with the Father. What Jesus did, you can do as well. So Jesus not only provided good leadership by serving others through great miracle, he also empowered and he taught his disciples to be great leaders by giving his power to them through the giving of the Holy Spirit. This morning, if you're a believer, God has deposited his Holy Spirit in you to give you power to do what he has done. The greatest servant of all models and teaches leadership through serving others. There's no other way to greatness in the kingdom of God than by serving other people. That's what Jesus did. That's what he modeled. And that's what he calls you 
and I to do as well. No greater example of this when Jesus gave his body and allowed his blood to be shed for you and I. No greater example of servanthood. No greater example of, of, of giving up everything he had for you and I is embodied in that broken body that shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. No greater act of servanthood, no greater act of leadership can be found than in that. And when we recognize that, it gives us an opportunity to come to acknowledge that this is what this represents. This is the greatest measure of servanthood. It is the greatest measure of love. I receive that because I want to become that. That's our focus this morning. We're receiving this. We're recognizing what it represents. That he laid down his life for you and I. That he was willing to serve you and I to the point of dying for us. So whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. What it represents, what it signifies. I receive it. I recognize it because I want to become that as well. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we just thank you again this morning for the great example of what it means to serve others that Jesus has given to us, not just in this time of communion, but God, as we look at all of the miracles, all of the signs and wonders, the way Jesus dealt with people, the way he responded to situations, that God, all of that was in his effort to serve others and to bring the kingdom of God upon the earth. And Lord, I, I pray this morning that God, whatever we have, that Lord, we would use that, that we would just put that in your hands, that we would leverage that in your direction. And that God, you would take that and God, you would begin to work and to multiply that. That God, we also like you can just begin to serve others out of what you have given to us so, Father, this morning, as we just kind of come to this time of communion, of, of communing with you, and God, you see our hearts, God, and Lord, you're very well aware of the things that are happening in our lives this morning. And God, I just specifically pray for people here this morning who just feel maybe they are in an impossible place, that God, would you just give them Again, Lord, just that confirmation that while what may be impossible with them, that suddenly becomes possible with you. 
And Father, I just pray this morning that that would just again breathe faith, that that would just breathe life, that that would breathe that eternal hope into that impossible situation to just come and to recognize that God, you are in it. And because you're in it, you can do it. So Father, this morning, I just, I pray, Lord, if it's areas of finances, God, if it's relationships, children, God, we're again, we're just here this morning and we feel like we're at wit's end. We feel like we're in over our heads. We feel like it's an impossible situation. God, use this this morning to just confirm to us that what may look and feel impossible to us, that God, you may have brought us to this point this morning so that we can truly realize just how great, how awesome you are, God, and how much you love us. Because God, you're about to take the impossible and make it possible. We just thank you for that this morning. We come to communion this morning again, realizing that God, you took an impossible situation, our sins, and God, you did what only you could do to take the impossible of having a relationship with you and now making it possible, desirable to have a relationship with us. We just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.